Hello! Welcome back to this HP Lovecraft uh, book club. Um, and as always, we're going to look at some of uh, Lovecraft's writings. Uh, specifically, we're looking at his letters, the, the second volume of the Selected Letters, um, published after he died. It's the second of five. I have volumes two, three, four, so, uh, but I took notes on volumes one and five when I was able to get them from the library. So when we finally get to volume five, I'll just be... Uh, talking about his uh, talking about them more generally but for two three four we're able to go through them letter by letter so that's what i'm going to be doing today uh specifically this is the sixth episode looking at the second volume of the selected letters and we'll be looking at the letters written in june 1927 to october 1927 these are these are kind of uh it's interesting how he Lovecraft is interested in certain things at certain times, and he writes about them in his letters. Uh, these tend to be about literature. A lot of these are about his career. It's actually kind of an interesting point in his career. We saw some um, frustration with his career in earlier letters, uh, recent you know letters from 1926 or so after his return from New York. Um, but this is a much more exciting period. This is when he submitted Call of Cthulhu. It's when Color Out of Space was bought. It was uh, when he started working on Whisper in Darkness. And these are uh, important stories uh, in his, you know, written by Lovecraft. Really, you know, important ones to that kind of, uh, you know, his, his, some of his masterpieces, right? So it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time. And, and he's writing a lot about literature. And I think that's the core theme. There's other stuff here as well in this set of letters, but but that seems to be the focus. His style, his his views on other writers, and things like that. But first, I have a, a listener letter I want to uh, read to you or or share with you. Okay, this this letter's from from John. Um, Hello, Professor Lampy. Why do people think I'm a professor? I used to be a professor, but I'm, I'm not, any, not anymore. Now I'm just teaching high school. I'll do that. I think this will be my last year doing that, and then I don't know what I'll be doing. Probably not going back into the professor gig, unless I get lucky. Anyways, here's the letter. Love the previous series on Hereditary Stories by HPL, Rats on the Wall, Lurking Fear, and Festival. Your comments on Lovecraft's reoccurring imagery was very intriguing, especially on his sea imagery. The focus on his transatlanticism really gets with the view of the sea as memory, and in my mind, also a destroyer in his cosmic horror. feel like many of the great American writers of the past had to tackle the sea in narrative about the ideas of the nation's struggle, and even Lovecraft's idol Poe, only novel was on the sea. Lovecraft's vision of the sea has always baffled me. Uh, we'll love to get your thoughts on this. Um, was less engaged by the revisions as they seemed to digress, but offered a more descriptive style i.e. Crawling Chaos, that I enjoyed in HPL's Dreamland stories. It was interesting how you tied that work back, tied that back to his work. I feel like having Lovecraft as an editor would have been strange and stressful. Um, very eager to hear you go back to the letters. I unfortunately cannot get my hands on a volume of them, but he extracts, but extracts and samples I found online surprised me, especially on his transcriptions of his dreams that seem nonsense stories. The series and others, especially on Library of America volumes, have made me seek out a lot of lesser-known authors, which is immediately appreciated. So, yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate you reading uh, Library of America or listening to Library of America series, and, and hopefully you do learn something about other 
maybe less known American writers through that. Uh, that's the series I'm really the most proud of. Um, but don't have as many listeners as my HPL or Philip Dick stuff. Um, so as for having Lovecraft as an editor, well, sometimes he was just like a proofreader. Sometimes he was a completely just a ghostwriter. So I guess that wouldn't have been too stressful to have him as a ghostwriter. He just writes the stories. But yeah, um, we get some sense of how he engages with these authors. He did revisions for in some of the letters. Um, so uh, I think he's pretty respectful, I think. And I get the sense and, and always very uh, complimentary towards their talents, even when he's writing the stories for them. Um, as for the sea, yeah, that's like my main theme here is the sea, uh, the metaphorical sea the real sea in his, in his fictions. And as for Americans overall, um, having a struggle with the sea, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, America was born of the sea. Uh, America's, it was an empire uh, that, you know, an extension of European empires. The slave trade, America's, one of America's original sins was via the sea. I think, you know, it's it's empire in the pacific you know it's kind of as it ventured out after it conquered the continent it ventured out to the pacific you know that was all tied to the sea so um you know whole communities really had that relationship with the sea so i i think it's a big part of it too um you know i don't know i, I wouldn't say you, we should break up american writers into like like the blue the blue maritime writers and and i don't know like green writers the land writers the continental writers there might be something to that though but you think of jack london poe as you mentioned uh melville of course you know there's there's so much tied to the sea and american empire i think i think that's part of it it's like really empire is is kind of part of the burden of america um anyways good letter thanks for Thanks for your comments, John. Hopefully you keep listening and don't mind me sharing your thoughts. All right. So let's jump into um, this set of letters. Again, June 1927 to October 1927. Um, so the first one I want to look at is to Zelia Brown-Reed. This is actually what I was just mentioning in response to the letter. It's like, he did revisions. He actually ghost wrote three stories. Yeah, three stories for, for Bishop, uh, Curse of Yig, The Mound, and Medusa's Coil. All interesting stories. We'll get to them at some point. Um, and he's, you know, and he's usually, like I said, pretty respectful of, of their talents. Here he's kind of critical, not of Bishop, but of romance writers. And he talks about, you know, the art it's something he commonly writes to, to bishop writes about to bishop what is aesthetically pleasing what is the proper function of art um and he thinks the problem of romance is it's basically a single passion it, it reduces humanity to a single passion and this is why romantic authors fail quote single passions that influence whole lives are exceedingly rare and when these seem to exist will often be found on analysis that the permanence is in the effect as produced through subsidiary causes set in motion by the initial emotion rather than in the pristine motivating force itself so he's saying really if you have a novel about love 
like a romance novel, it's too simplistic. People don't just feel love. They feel complex emotions. And, and throughout a moment in their life, they're feeling many things at once. Contradictory emotions and emotions aren't reducible. It's kind of like culture reduces emotions, right? But those feelings overall, you know, well, even in a biological sense, are, are more complex, right? It's, it's actually something I thought quite a lot about is how, you know, something like love, right? There's certainly some kind of biochemical foundation to love. It's be a, basically a universal human experience, right? You know, those various chemicals that you get from bonding with someone, creating an, attract, an attraction and an attachment that is like the biochemical love. But most cultures obviously see love as something more mystical and spiritual and, 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 and don't want to just reduce it to the biochemical. Um, and... But all cultures will kind of interpret those those common things differently, right? Love has a different meaning in different cultural contexts. So, you know, to the degree that that's true, yeah, that like emotions are just a mix of, of chemicals and stuff in the brain. Um, Lovecraft doesn't go into this here. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of extending from it. But um, anyways, that's why he doesn't like the romantic writers. He doesn't like tales of love in this way. Um, at the same time, though, I would point out that Lovecraft focuses on fear. Uh, he kind of, I don't know if he reduces fear, but in his own writings, he's, he's not necessarily exploring the whole gamut of human emotions. Um, you know, he almost never writes about love, for that matter. So he's just kind of uh, making the same error, maybe from the other way. Um, but the need here, then... It, as he talks about in this letter, is the need to get to the complexity of the human experience, right? Um, so this ends up being a very, very long discussion on emotions and emotions in art. He writes, for instance, therefore, use, unless a writer, therefore, unless a writer wishes to appear very naive or to cater wholly to the unsophisticated public, he will beware of the exhalation and apotheosis of the thin, unimaginative, falsified Romeo and Juliet theme. Instead of gullibly assuming an artificial state of things and monotonously rehashing the milk and water triumphs, inevitable triumphs, of the mythically omnipotent love over all obstacles, any solid writer of real love stories will tell of conflicts and compromises betwixt various phases of love in various stages of completeness or intensity. End quote. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. That's a fair observation. So, anyway, it's a really interesting letter. I think it's a good one. Um, that's that's exploring his his views on emotions in art. And then I think we can interrogate to what degree he maybe overemphasizes fear as an emotion. Um, next, we just got a little fragment here. I think it was maybe like a little note card. Um, just to Farnsworth Wright, he's the editor at Weird Tales. He provides ten poems. Um, these are from fungi of, of from Yugoth which I guess I'm going to have to look at pretty soon. I, I, I know I'm, I promised to look at the poetry. Um, so I think the way it's going to go is it's going to be finish the letters, then we'll do supernatural horror and literature, maybe two or three episodes on that, maybe one, I don't know, after we read it. Then poems, and then I think there might be some other nonfiction writings that are from this period. If I can track down those Houdini, I don't know if those are available, the Houdini um, articles about psychics and stuff like that about frauds um, anyways. but we'll get to the poems that's my point we'll come back to poems we already looked at some of the early ones anyways uh yeah he's just sending him some 
some of the fungi from Yugoth uh, poems, which is a series of poems, kind of a narrative poem in different verses. Um, I think there's like 40 of them or so, and this is just 10. All right, next we got another short letter to James F. Morton. Um, basically, uh, it's an apology letter for not sending him some rocks, some minerals he promised to send him, maybe, I guess, from local, from, from Rhode Island. Um, and he's just apologizing for that. So, But why? Well, why is this letter important at all? Well, it's because he's saying work is keeping him. So I get the sense he's, he's a bit out of his, his ennui that he felt maybe earlier in the year and, and in the previous, some of the previous letters where he's more frustrated with his work. Um, you know, I think maybe coming back to New England has finally had the positive effect. And this is a fairly productive and creative period for, for Lovecraft in terms of his writing. Kind of entering into the where he really stands up on his own. Um, I'm very excited to actually jump into these stories uh, soon. As soon as I as soon as I get done with some of this nonfiction and poetry. Um, all right, next uh, Clark Ashton Smith, another short letter. Um, this is interesting because it talks about uh, Ambrose Bierce and Chambers. Chambers is someone he at this point had recently been exposed to in the process of writing supernatural horror and literature and he kind of realized wow this kind of pulpy romance you know schlock writer wrote some really good weird fiction uh the yellow sign stuff and he talks about him in in the, the article and he shared his views with clark ashton smith uh, in previous letters and here he's just kind of comparing uh, Chambers and Bierce and the creation of Carcosa. Carcosa itself was created by Ambrose Bierce. Um, Haster it seems to be Pierce's, but Chambers kind of added to it in his in his writing. So the two together sort of were created the you know the the god Haster and Carcosa. Um, always often associated with Lovecraft, but but clearly not a Lovecraft creation. I don't think he he wrote maybe in some of the revisions, and he may, he's mentioned. I mean, Haster's mentioned in a few stories. But, anyways, um, next Frank Belknap Long. These are always good letters. Um, uh, Lovecraft is kind of scolding Long here for not coming. His long delay at coming. He I think he was trying to arrange some kind of visits from some of these New York friends. To, to come up to, to Rhode Island, and eventually they do come and, and, and spend some time with them. Um, but he's kind of scolding him about not showing up. Um, and then he talks about how Weird Tales bought the color out of space. A very, very important story. Um, no, sorry. This was bought by Amazing. Amazing Stories published Color Out of Space. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, he mostly wrote for Weird Tales. It's an easy mistake to make. But this and The Mountains of Madness, published by um, other magazines. Um, so, yeah, what does it say? Oh, by the way, Amazing Stories lived up to its name by, amaz by amazing me almost into unconsciousness. What the hell do they think? They took the color out of space. No spoofings. I enclosed their card to prove it. If they pay respectively, I ought to get a decent little check out of this. For the manuscript ran to 32 pages. Perhaps they're so used to free reprints they haven't formed the paying habit. There's some sarcasm about being paid, too, here. A little joke. He's often worried about money. Um, the next letter 
is dated. I haven't been giving the dates, have I? Today, those were all in June. Uh, the last one was July first. The long letter. Okay. Uh, f- next, we got one f- from to Farnsworth Wright again, uh, July fifth, nineteen twenty-seven. This is the submission of the Call of Cthulhu. The resubmission of the Call of Cthulhu. Um, I guess it got rejected, and then he he kind of sat on it and resubmitted it, and hopefully it'll get through this time. He kind of explains. You know, kind of defends the story a little bit. It's weirdness. He says, "You might, well, you will still think it's a trifle too bizarre for a clientele who demand their weirdness and name only, and who like to keep both feet pretty solidly on the ground of the known and the familiar." As I said some time ago, I doubt if my work and especially my later products will go very well with the sort of readers whose reactions are represented in the eerie. The general t- trend of the yarns, which seem to suit the public, is that of increasing normative of outlook and simplicity of point of view. Um, so, and he talks a little bit more about his tales. Uh, it's a kind of an important letter though, cause he does defend his theme, his special contribution to literature, where he says like what his stories have in common quote. Now all of my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. To me, there's nothing but puerility in a tale in which the human form are depicted as native to other worlds or other universes. Kind of a, a little bit of a stab at maybe some science fiction there. But nevertheless, he mentioned some of his other works here too. So this is a nice reflection by Lovecraft on his own writing in the context of his feeling that maybe Call the Cthulhu will not be um, accepted. Of course, it eventually is accepted and published in Weird Tales. But, uh, you know, it took some work and it took... Maybe this letter helped convince Farnsworth Wright to publish that story all right I, I rather like that letter um so next we have uh, a letter to long again frank belknap long july 6 1927 um he's basically again it's kind of talking about the trip and he says you know where he'll stay some houses uh, that long can stay in in providence maybe to rent um yeah some boarding houses and things places for him to go um this is really just a very uh it's actually kind of a fun formal letter. He's kind of playing with a formal style of, of almost like a salesperson or an agent, a housing agent or something, writing, um, you know, and he gives this long description of the qualities of the house. So it's kind, I think it's a, a pun or, or, or just an extended kind of satire of that style of, of letter. Um, he writes, for instance, uh, uh, in conversation with old lady Reynolds, it developed that she was perfectly willing to devote her own study and reception room to visitorial accommodation, and she indeed displayed the most commendable zeal in furthering my plans for accessible hospitality. Not only will she accord to the house of Long a pair of rooms whose size, location, and decorative taste leave no ground for objection, she will likely provide a third floor retreat for a 75-inch neo-galpinius. And that's another one of his New York friends, so... I think several were coming. It's a fun letter, uh, but written in kind of overblown formal style about nothing more dramatic than than renting a house. Uh, The next letter is to Clark Ashton Smith, July 15th, 1927. I think they never actually meet. Um, At least they haven't met up to this point. I I think the whole life they don't meet. Um, This is kind of a follow-up but it's from a different point of view of this this visit thing so the the people visiting um 
coming to see him in New York. So he talks about Wandre's visit to New England. He talks about his own trip to Boston. And he talks about a visit by James Morton. And then he's saying Long's going to come later. So a lot of his friends have been, have been kind of making a point to see him. Um, writes, later on, we're going to Boston and to digest all the scenic and historic sites and sites of the region. And on Tuesday, we shall back to welcome another of our merry crew, the divine old Falstaff among servants. James Ferdinand Morton, who's coming to Providence for five days. So it's a nice little reunion, a fun reunion for, for Lovecraft. We get to see his New York, New York friends. All right, next, uh, a follow-up uh, to Farnsworth Wright, July 16th. So the previous letter to Wright was July 5th. So he must have got a reply from Wright saying he's going to publish Cthulhu. And... Call of Cthulhu, and this is Lovecraft's reply. He got $165 for it, and he's quite happy for that much. Um, he talks about trying to get uh, Strange High House on the Mist published, um, and the reprint of Horror at Red Hook. Um, so, just some more stuff on his publications. Uh, next, we got a letter for to Maurice Moe. We haven't seen many letters to Maurice Moe uh, recently i don't know do they not exist or they just weren't collected in this um this anthology but uh this is more of again it's a personal letter it's not really dealing with like politics race new york those kinds of things it's, it's just a report on that gang's visit to new england the thing he'd been planning and and, and talking about to others um he, he, so it's just a report on that, and he talks about his visit to Marblehead, his, their visit to Salem, and he gives a fairly lengthy descriptions of various excursions they went on. Um, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting letter, and it's fairly lengthy, but, you know, there's not that much to talk about. But if you are interested in kind of, you know, this visit, this, this gathering of Lovecraft and his friends in New England, this is a letter to go to. Okay, next... Uh, Frank Belknap Long, August 1927. Bit of a, uh, I'm not quite sure when in August. It's not dated beyond just August. Um, so this is the first mention I've seen in these letters of, of Lovecraft's thinking about uh, the whisper in darkness. Um, really great story. Interesting one. And, and kind of doing some different things uh, compared to what he had been writing uh, in, in the years before that. Um, and in a different location too. So he talks about going to see Battle um, Brattleboro. And Brattleboro is, of course, where Whisper in Darkness, at least partially, is set. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in the story about the folklore, about the local traditions, local history, and and that's why I think it's kind of cool about the Whisper in Darkness, to be honest. But he went there and he saw kind of something special in in this place in Vermont. Um. He writes, good enough country, country west of the city is the most colorful and unspilled bit of elder American which I've ever seen. It's truly our own ancestral land without the least intrusion of any blood customs or devices alien to primal New England. The hills are high and green and roads narrow and rutted and the foliage rich and untainted. So he doesn't mention exactly um, the whisper in darkness, but we see like the beginning of his thinking about the whisper in darkness and, and the setting, particularly the setting, which is so crucial, I think, to that to that story. Um, really one thing that makes that story really special. 
Uh, this this theme's kind of extended in the next letter, which is dated August 2nd. Again, I don't know if this was written before or after the, the long letter, uh, but it's pretty early in August, so chances are this was written first. Uh, August 2nd, 1927. But he also is, is, again, praising the New England landscape, right? So, you know, something about that visit to, to Vermont inspired him. Because he's talking in similar ways here. He says, at the same time, I doubt if any scenery could affect me quite as poignantly and permanently as the mild, rich, traditional topography of my native New England. There are really two distinct personalities in me, the cosmic and fantastic on the one hand, the historic, domestic, and antiquarian on the other. Um, and he goes on a little bit about his own personal connection with New England's landscapes. But I think in the long letter, he goes a little bit farther than this and even says, like, there's really this special, almost primeval slice of new england that's that's more pristine that's what becomes the setting of the whisper in darkness or who needs that it, you know the whisper in darkness has to be set in that place with a deep natural history um such a great story um all right uh next uh august 28th zelia brown reed um so usually he's talking about literature and tastes and, and the kind of stuff he likes to read here. Um, so he talks about uh, how Poe set up his preference for art, his aesthetics. You know, Poe was was obviously a huge influence on Lovecraft, and, and he never denies that. Um, he talks a little bit about his own beliefs, his lack of or lack of belief in the supernatural. Um, his growing up reading, reading science and fantasy. I mean, so many people read like science fiction and fantasy, but he's before science fiction, right? Um, you didn't really have science fiction as a genre yet. You had tales that we can kind of retcon as science fiction or proto-science fiction, but it didn't exist as like a, as a genre like stamped in the, on the magazine. Science tales or things like that you would see. Science stories or whatever. Um, but especially when he was growing up, but he read science and fantasy. Um, what else do we have here? What does he say? Uh, yeah, when I was very small, I was all for fantasy, as I am now. Then came a period of science, chemistry, astronomy, biology, anthropology, etc., which I despised all literature and aesthetics, although continued to write tales. Then at 18, I turned to poetry and criticism, not returning to weird fiction for nine more years. And, you know, so he kind of gives some of his own uh, intellectual history here. Now, he mentions this in this letter, too. He says, um, A youth who began writing only three or four years ago in high school had just placed at least three fantastic yarns with weird tales, while a friend has recently told me of a boy still in high school who was struck sudden success through a novel of high school life. Um, so, who is this? So, I think this is Robert E. Howard, at least one of these two he's mentioned. A youth who began writing only three or four years ago uh, in high school had just placed at least three fantastic yarns with Weird Tales. I mean, Robert E. Howard started writing his stuff for Weird Tales in 1924, I want to say, 1925, were his first publications. So that fits. It fits. Um, so I don't know. I'm guessing that's Robert E. Howard. Uh, obviously, Lovecraft will, uh, in 1930, begin his correspondence with, with Howard, which will continue to the end of Howard's life. Um, and then he talks about using pseudonyms. I mean, there, he doesn't really think it's, he thinks it's fine, but, um, it's not something he really, he does or thinks is that important. 
Um, but he kind of ties this back to ancestry in a weird way. He says, when an author especially cherishes or wish to honor a particular line of his ancestry, which his surname does not express, I think he is eminently justified in effecting some transposition or interpolation better fitted to his state of mind. Uh, and now I'm wondering why he didn't do that. Why isn't he like Howard Phillips? <laughs> why doesn't he make that his name or something? If, if that's the more aristocratic line that he would want to honor rather than the, the Lovecraft side. But anyways, he gives an example of uh, C.L. Dodgen, uh, Lewis Carroll, you know, when writing Alice in Wonderland. So, uh, these, these pseudonyms exist. But this is, this is a fun little letter uh, with some interesting stuff about his own belief, his own upbringing, the kind of stuff he liked to read as a kid. I think a reference to Robert E. Howard um, and some, some other stuff. Um, it's kind of typical of, of the letters to Bishop and that they're about literature and his own kind of sentiments and feelings about writers. Okay, next we got Frank Belknap Long, September 6, 1927. Um, so this is a follow-up to their visit. He says, well, the orgy is over at last, and the old gentleman is weakly gasping amid the prodigious welter of work which piled up during his absence. Shall I ever see daylight again? So he's got work to do. Um, but mostly here he talks about different locations, that they visited, it's kind of a, some of this is like a recap of their, of their um, trip. But he talks about like Portland, he talks about uh, Gloucester, you know, Providence, of course, different places they, they visited. Um, now, importantly here, he says, unlike New York, Boston, or Massachusetts, anyways, is the most civilized place in America, more or less. Quote, all told, there's little doubt that, but that Massachusetts is the really finest and most civilized state in the Union. Boston, as you will see when greater age causes you to cease magnifying quaint special limitations, is really an enormously mature and ripely civilized city. Leagues beyond anything New York ever was or could have been even had it not met its present ruin. And we know his feeling on New York. We don't have to kind of go into it too much. But he thinks that America's kind of becoming more and more like New York, like New York is spreading. Um, the, the New York kind of cancer. Um, but Boston is somehow, or Massachusetts overall, is somehow preserved from that or, or resistant. Obviously not forever. He did ride the street, uh, which obviously has a warning uh, for, for New England as well. But kind of an interesting letter on geography and kind of going back to his feelings on New York versus New England. So that's a, that's a lot of rehashing stuff. But um, yeah, he even here talks about how he only champions part of Providence. That was something we noticed he, he observed when he got back to Providence and started exploring it some more. He's like, well, the Providence that I grew up in is part of Providence, but... You know, there's a lot of other neighborhoods in Providence that are getting be, getting a bit weird, too. Uh, you know, those swarthy foreigners showing up here and there. So, you know, he's, he's ultimately only championing part of Providence. He's, he's becoming more and more parochial in this way. Uh, next letter, again to Bishop. Uh, Celia Brown Reed Bishop. Um, this letter, it's cut up, so we don't have the full thing here um, by the editors. But two interesting things here in this letter, at least in the part we have. It's dated September 1927. 
First is uh, his viewings on maritime New England, right? He loves New York, or he loves New... Sorry, he doesn't love New York. He loves New England, and he seems to have this kind of weird fear of the sea and uh, this, this ambivalent attitude towards the sea, but he loves these maritime towns, um, especially Gloucester. And, of course, he writes about these places, Innsmouth, Kingsport, even Arkham are, are kind of maritime cities. Um, when he writes about Providence, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, he focuses on its maritime relation connections. Um, and isn't that what brings in the immigrants? Isn't that what brings in the cultural diversity that he fears? That's why I think it's kind of an ambivalence. He says, from Newburyport, after a side trip to see friend in Haverville, I proceeded through ancient Ipswich to Gloucester, the last of the really unchanged New England fishing ports. Here, despite a growing Portuguese and Italian invasion, one may actually get a lingering taste of old New England's maritime past, along with waterfront filled with sail lofts, ship chandeliers, and seamen's missions. Sounds like a good place. Then he talks about Salem, witchcraft, trials, and all that stuff. So I'll get a little bit more on him, New England geography. Kind of can be joined with the long letter we just looked at. Both look at New England geography and his own fondness for it. And then he talks a little bit about smoking and um, his... He doesn't have those vices. Lovecraft doesn't. That's, I, I like reading his stuff. I'm interested in Lovecraft, but man, he just he needed some more vice, I think, in his life. Sex, drinking, smoking, something. But that's not him. That wasn't him. That wasn't him. So anyways, doesn't even like smoking. Next, we got a, a short little fragment to James F. Morton. Which is just talks about the style of, of stories in, in Weird Tales. So, quickly moving on. All right, next, uh, again, too long. Frank Belknap Long, September 17th, 1927. Um, long visits uh, Newport. Um, and Lovecraft gives his own opinions of, of the de kind of the decline of ancient places in New England. So it's, it's kind of a running theme here of, of like the dying of these old places. And I, I think it's significant that he writes like strange, uh, strange high house in the mist around this time, which is about Kingsport, which is the most ancient. And that's, that is about geography, uh, urban geography and architecture, you know, in a serious way. And case of Charles Dexter Ward, which yeah, is done by this point, but that's also very much about local architecture and, and preserving the old we, we looked at his letter to the newspaper where he says we got to preserve these towns uh, and this architecture. Um, but he does think overall like ancient places are being declined. Um, I, I, I'm curious what Lovecraft would say about like urban renewal projects of, of our own time, right? And how whole cities get torn down and, and with a great cost of culture, you know, to build a stadium or to build a... 10-story apartments. This is kind of, as much as I love Taiwan, I do think Taipei does this too much, right? Tears down too much of the old and builds just these high skyscrapers. And, you know, they're not pretty. They're not beautiful. They're just kind of shitty. Um, but it's the world we live in, right? He In this letter, he also gives a description of a possible trip to, uh, to what does he call it? Bishop Berkeley's? country that's the name he gives for it 
Another outland pilgrimage is to the Bishop Berkeley country, some four miles beyond Newport Beach on the road to Middleton. I don't know the Bishop Berkeley reference, really, um, but he talks about, you know, he liked to do these tours, and he did many of them. Um, next letter, again, to Zelia Brown-Reed. This is dated September 22, 1927. Um, he talks about... Uh, Kind of like the earlier read letter we talked about where he was talking about he doesn't like romance. Here he says, we really don't need vulgar sen sensationalist stories. So it's kind of another genre he's picking on here. Uh, quote, cheap newspapers and dime novels have so fed the public up on this sort of thing that nothing of freshness or novelty is left. Everything is known or expected for it's been told a thousand times before in one guise or another. The story becomes arresting and significant only when its elements stand out as well-linked components or symbols of some larger cosmos. Kind of pimping his own style, his own approach, obviously. Um, and he says, like, he, he talks interestingly here why his own style stays out of the revisions. And this is something we, even that, that guy who wrote the letter to me, John, he, he notices this. Uh, like, the revisions are sort of different. Um, and he, how he's able to keep his own style out of his revisions. You know, some really do feel like 100% Lovecraft tales, like The Mound. Obviously, it is. But some of his other revisions, even ones he wrote, you know, he's able to put himself in the head of another writer. Uh, I think that's to his own his own skill, that he did have his distinctive style, but it wasn't that that was the only thing way he could write. Uh, he could write in other ways. Um, he does also talk something very interesting about Pickman's model to, to read. Bishop uh, saying, I thought you'd realize after reading Pickman's model, one of my tamest and mildest diffusions, that not much of my own style gets into my revisions. Incidentally, the setting of that tale was very close to fact up to that year, and I was tremendously mortified last July when I tried to show the district to one of my guests and found the whole scene torn down for two blocks around. So this air, the setting of Pickman's model was destroyed. And so we again get the theme of this loss of architecture and loss of the ancient and loss of the old. That's another tale that really emphasizes the architecture. We'll get to that, too, um, soon enough. Uh, so next, uh, two more letters to look at in this episode. Um, next, we have Frank Belknap Long's uh, a Lovecraft letter dated September 24th. He writes 1727. It's, I think that was on purpose. Um, because this letter is about ancestry and family history. And so he embraces the, the 18th century here. Uh, he sends some stories to Long. He sends like a copy of The Worm Ouroboros. I really should read that one of these days. Um, kind of an early fantasy story. Um, praising, um, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, I'm getting ahead of my notes here. Um, yeah, he, he, mostly this is about his own family mm -hmm. genealogy. And, and he, whenever he does this, or often when he does this, he, he throws in these God Save the King stuff, especially the long. It's, it's kind of a running joke. Um, but he talks a little bit about his travels a bit as well. So it's a nice, it's a nice little short letter. Um, but we see Lovecraft uh, mentioning uh, the worm Ouroboros. And he mentions this later to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, so he's kind of recommending this. So I think I'm, he must have read it around this time, Edison's work. So let's uh, talk about that. So the last letter I want to look at today, dated October 1st, 
1927 is to Clark Ashton Smith. Um, now, obviously, all of these letters to Smith, or many of them, seem to start with a praise for Smith's paintings and work. He loved the, the Smith stuff. He actually says Smith is a better artist than himself. Um, you know, this humility is common in Lovecraft's letters, too. Um, now, he recommends to to uh, Smith that he reads The Worm Ouroboros as well. He says, as to my recent readings, above all else, I recommend The Worm Ouroboros by E.R. Edison, which combines some glorious imaginative fantasy with an exquisitely lyrical prose style. Next to that, in literary worth, I'd place the new drama Goat Song by Fr uh, Franz Werfel, in which the element of brooding and imminent terror is magnificently handled. And Lantier by Pierre Bonnet has excellent style, but it's more adventurous and fantastic. And he mentioned some other works, including talking a little bit about Chambers. They've been talking about Chambers. Smith and Lovecraft have been talking about Chambers um, for a little while now. All right, that does it. So I think there's a few themes here. One, a lot of stuff about his own career in, in writing and his styles and, and you know other literature, his own feelings about it, whether it's his criticism of sentimental and romantic literature or his praise for some of the best fantasy and word fiction of the time. Uh, we have... A fairly productive period in his career where he's getting stories sold like Call of Cthulhu, Color Out of Space, um, Strange High House on the Mist was written and around this time. And we have a lot of evidence that he's thinking about architecture and thinking about the destruction of architecture and the impact of this destruction on, on communities and, and, and historical legacies. So that's it. Um, so the next episode will cover October 1927 to February 1928, so about four months. It's another, every time I'm going to do 20 letters, right? And I will record that next time. Uh, we're getting toward the end of this volume, actually, uh, at least in terms of episodes. I, I've planned nine episodes, looking at 20 letters in each episode. Um, and we're already, th we, we only got three more. Um, but in terms of bulk... It's still like half of the book uh, that we need to talk about. We're only on page 174 of, of like 360. So a lot of long letters coming up, especially towards the, in the last two episodes will we'll, we'll contain a lot of long, meaty letters. Um, doesn't always mean there's a lot to talk about in the letters if they're long. Sometimes they really are him just going on about his genealogy or his tours. Interesting, relevant. Certainly, that's why they're in here, but maybe not things I want to say too much about. So it doesn't mean those episodes will be long. It's just, you know, there are some um, significant size letters coming up. So I guess that's it. Um, let me know what you think of this period of Lovecraft's life and his letters if you read them. Uh, I'd love to hear your opinion about it. Send me a letter. I'll read it online unless you tell me not to. Um, it's good to share I don't get many letters about my podcast, but I'm always happy to get them and to and and to hear what you have to say. I may not get it right away because I, you know, Gmail even with a VPN, Gmail doesn't work well in China. I don't know why. Um, it's really slow. Maybe my account is slow for some reason. Who knows? But anyways, I will uh, keep an eye open f for your replies and your thoughts and. Um, I'll be back shortly recording uh, s some more about these letters. Thanks, as always, for listening.